in uh, the very famous expressionist painting titled The Scream, written by Edward Mook, and I, 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 I trust most of you have, have seen it. There is a, a very startling image on that picture, isn't there, of a, of a frightened, anxious face that dominates the forefront of the picture. And in the backdrop, of course, is sort of a blood-red sky. And to the side, you know, juxtaposed to this, to this grotesque, frightened face, is the portrait of two men just calmly conversing and strolling down the sidewalk. It's a classic example of juxtaposition. When, when an artist takes two very contrasting images... And, and, and places them side by side. And, and by the comparison of, of these starkly contrasting images, a message is communicated. It's provocative. It, it causes one to think and, and to probe and ask questions. Of course, that was intentionally done by Mook, who, who wanted to, uh, to portray an arresting scene, something that caused us to consider... Uh, the, the concept of, of anxiety. Now, the writer here of our story does that brilliantly. He does it absolutely brilliantly, and you may not have caught it, but uh, he's a very skillful writer. As you see here, all of these details, repetitions, switchbacks throughout the account. But, but really, if you could set some of that aside, or at least see that as, as background... Here is what's in the forefront of his thinking. The contrast between two actions of Joshua, back to back, 29 and 30. Look at your Bibles. In one picture here, you have Joshua hanging the king of Ai on a tree. And yet in the very next scene, in verse 30, what do you have? But you have Joshua building an altar to the Lord on Mount Ebal. Now, these are completely distinct historical incidents, because the incident you have here in verse 29 is at the end of the battle when Israel went up to defeat Ai. And the picture in verse 30 is at least 20 miles north in the town of Shechem. In other words, there is a great number of days that have elapsed between verse 29 and verse 30. But it's these contrasting images of Joshua and his action that really tie these two different narratives together and communicate a single theological message to the people of God as they read that. And the single theological message that you are to take from this passage, and we'll unfold this, and I warn you ahead of time, it's going to take a while to get to where we need to go. We're going to have to do some careful work with our passage. But remember, the, the reason why that we study these passages so carefully is because we believe they are inspired by the Holy Spirit and that these passages are designed to unfold Christ to us, as the New Testament tells us. They are not abstract moral lessons. These are not miscellaneous illustrative stories of one more success of Israel in, in a faraway foreign land. That these stories are designed and crafted to tell a message. And that message is the victory of God in Jesus Christ. 
And the total theological message of this chapter, which but we have to, to get at, we're going to use verses 29 and 30 as our lens through which to see the, the details of our passage, is that it's going to be through covenant curse. It's going to be through covenant curse that God's people will find the path to blessing and eternal relationship with God. It's going to be through covenant curse that God's people are going to find a path to eternal blessing and fellowship with God. We need to unfold that. That's, it's a lot to, to demonstrate and to bear out. But, but let's first of all look at the backdrop to this covenant renewal ceremony which Joshua initiates beginning with verse 30. There's a backdrop to this renewal. There's a backdrop to Joshua standing on Mount Ebal of fashioning this altar. And the backdrop, first of all, is the Battle of Ai. There's much to say about the Battle of Ai. It's perhaps the most fascinating battle that's recorded in all the book of Joshua. Uh, there is, uh, first of all, the word of assurance. Uh, that kicks off the intrigue of the passage, the word of assurance that you find in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear or be dismayed. Now, now why is that so important? Well, if you're reading Joshua straight through, you know exactly why that's important. Because in chapter 7, uh, Israel had just gone through this terrible ordeal of being defeated at the hands of Ai. Uh, they had gone through this terrible ordeal because there was sin in the camp, and God, because of the sin of Achan, cursed the entire camp of Israel. People died, people cried, people had funerals, and Israel had to go through Judgment Day. Well, after they finally uh, buried Achan in that valley of Achor, under that massive pile of stones... But God comes back to his people. He comes back to Joshua in particular. And now he gives Joshua these very encouraging words. Do not fear or be dismayed. The thing that Joshua was only natural to feel is fear. God says, don't feel fear. I am with you. Don't be dismayed. And it's fascinating, uh, the structure of this narrative of battle from verse 1 to 29 is structured around Two words of God saying the same thing. In verse 1, you have uh, the Lord coming to Joshua and say, don't be afraid. And then he gives them battle plans in the rest of verse 1. And then in verse 18, which is the, the second section of our narrative, where uh, the writer kicks into full gear explaining the battle. At the, at the beginning of that, again, the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out. The javelin. He says, I will give it into your hand. So two different times, God coming to his servant, assuring him of his presence, and then uh, explaining uh, how to do battle with these enemies. And, and, and so what you have here then is God unfolding a battle plan for Ai. And it's a fascinating battle plan, and it's one which is really rooted in the providential circumstances. It's, it's rooted in the fact that they just lost to Ai in chapter 7. God comes to Joshua and he gives him a brilliant strategy to defeat Ai. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to take uh, your best fighters with you. That's the point of saying the valiant warriors uh, in verse 3. I know it says, he says, take all the valiant warriors or all the men of war, but that's impossible because there are over 600,000 men of war. So, in other words, what he does is he takes the best. He takes, uh, he takes a bunch of army rangers or marines, if you like that better. 
He takes the best of the best. Okay? And he says, what we're going to do is we're going to go up to Ai. And once you march up there, what I want you to do is position about a handful of the troops behind the hill where Ai is stationed. And it's a great place to put people because that hill is just covered with massive boulders. So it's a great place to stage an ambush. And so in the cover of the night, uh, it looks like uh, what Joshua does after he's marched Israel down there to the battleground, what he does is he, is he peels off about 5,000 guys, uh, probably his best troops, and he stations them the backside of Ai. And he says to them, when I give you the signal, you're going to go inside Ai. And uh, what he does is he positions the rest of his troops over here on a hillside. You have Ai right here. There's a hillside right here. And there's a valley in between. And so what Joshua does is he puts the troops right out here on the hillside. So what is the first thing that Ai sees when they wake up in the morning and they see Israel there? But it looks like there's ducks on a pond. Here is Israel, this, this group of ragtag soldiers who couldn't fight their way out of a wet paper bag a couple of days ago. They're up there on the hillside again. And, and, and the fascinating thing is, is look at verse 14, the description of the citizens of Ai. It says, it came about when the king of the city saw it, that the men of the city hurried, and they rose up early in the morning to meet Israel for battle. In other words, uh, they were just wringing their hands ready to get a battle because they just knew what was going to happen again. They were going to whip these Israelites into shape. Well, that's what happened, by the way, too, isn't it? Because as soon as they come out of the gates of Ai, uh, they go to put their hand to Israel, and what happens? The very same thing that happened the last time when they met. Israel turned away and ran. And the men of Ai just got overwhelmed with courage and with joy. You can see these guys are already giving themselves uh, high fives. They're already celebrating the victory. Verse 16 says, all the people who were in the city called together to pursue them. All the people you see. They said, here we are. It's going to happen just like it did before. And so they get on their horses and they ride out to battle. And then God takes over. God takes over. Remember, I told you God is directing the entire battle here. He's not only giving them the strategy, but he takes over the battle in verse 18 when he says, Okay, Joshua, now what I want you to do is take that javelin and stretch it out, for I have given them into your hand. And all of a sudden, what happens with the troops that were ambushed behind the hill stand up, come into the city, and just slaughter everybody in sight. They slaughter all the people, they set the town ablaze, and the next picture you have is Ai is pursuing Israel in a dead run to beat them down again, and then they hear the, the, the sizzle and pop and crackle of the fire behind them. They look back, and they see that the entire city is burning and in flames. And of course, what would anybody naturally do at that point? They turn back around, they run to the city, and so Israel is on this side of them, and they're running after Ai, and Israel's on this side of them, and they're running after Ai, and there's a great slaughter that happens. Brilliant battlefield tactics. All given by the Lord. And that's fascinating, because if you look at the rest of the battles in this book, you do not ever see such detailed military strategy. In fact, what you find is some really strange stuff like you see at Jericho. They'll march around a city seven times. Bullhorn, shout real loud, and the victory is yours. That is not military strategy. If anybody ever tried that today on any battlefield anywhere, they would die a very fast death. 
it almost reminds you of how they used to fight out war in the old days. People would dress up in blue coats over here, people in red coats over here, and they'd stand right across from each other about 50 feet away and just fire away all day long. Foolish. But, but God doesn't ask Israel to do something foolish here. God says do something really smart. And the end of the story is, is they just wiped out the entire city of Ai in about 10 minutes. But now you have to ask yourself the question, is that what Joshua 8 is about? Is Joshua 8 about God being a brilliant military tactician? Is it about saying God is a better general than Norman Schwarzkopf? Is it about saying that God is a better general than General Lee for the South in the, in the Civil War? Or Stonewall Jackson? Is that what it's about? Or better than General George Washington in the Revolutionary War? Well, in fact, no, the whole story I would submit to you is really here because of what you see at the end of 29. Because remember, what the writer to Joshua does is he butts two scenes up against each other which are going to inform one another. And the significant thread of this conquest narrative is the end verse. He hanged the king of Ai on a tree. That's why this is here. And think about all the battles that could have been recorded, because there was a lot of battles that Israel fought throughout this book, and none of them received this kind of detail. Usually what you have a little bit after this is the report that they went to this city and they beat them bad. They went to this city and they beat them bad. They went to three, four, five, six cities and they beat them all bad. No, this is here because there's something significant for us to see, and that is the curse. And, and why is that so significant? Because what Joshua is doing is he's acting out covenant curse before Israel. Go back to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 21. There you find the symbol of covenant curse. The text says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Moses gave, Moses gave the law in terms of how to deal with people who had grossly violated the covenant. That is, that they were to be executed, and then hung out on a tree so that all of the people would see what covenant curse looks like. And by that example, they would fear the Lord and depart from evil. And what Joshua does here is he strings this king of Ai up on a tree as he shows all of Israel, this is what sin deserves. This is what covenant violation brings you. Covenant curse. So while Israel is celebrating a great victory, they actually leave the battlefield thinking about covenant curse. Very important because now butted up against that is verse 30, and you have Joshua building this altar on Mount Ebal. Before, before we go any bit further here in this passage, I want to take you to Deuteronomy 27. I hope your Bibles are open, because you have to have Deuteronomy 27 as the backdrop, because that's really the second piece of information that forms the backdrop to this covenant renewal ceremony. The first one is the battlefield, and the, really the last verse there of Joshua showing what happens to people who break the covenant in terms of 
hanging that king on a tree. But uh, Deuteronomy 27 is so important for us because you will have noticed as we read through Joshua 8 and that account of the covenant renewal, it tells you repeatedly that Joshua did all that Moses had commanded in the book of the law to do it. And so Deuteronomy 27 is that backdrop to Joshua 8. And here, Deuteronomy 27, uh, Moses tells Joshua, this is what you are to do when you bring the people of God into the land. Beginning with verse 1 says, Moses and all the elders of Israel charged the people saying, keep all the commandments which I command you today. So shall it be on the day when you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord God gives you. You shall set up for yourself large stones and and coat them with lime and then write on them all the words of the law when you cross over. So first of all, what Moses is commanding uh, Joshua to do is he says, when you enter the land of promise, what you're to do is you're to make a beeline to this covenant renewal location. And God had spelled it out. The covenant renewal location would be Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, which is in the city of Shechem. Shechem really is in the valley, and on both sides of it are these two hills, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. So first of all, he says what you're to do is you're to take a stone, huge stones, cover them with lime, and then write on them the law distinctly so that all the people can see. Second of all, he says in verses 4 through 6, what you're to do is you're to make an altar of uncut stones. And then you're going to offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. Why burnt offerings and peace offerings? Well, burnt offerings because burnt offerings atone for sin. Peace offerings because peace offerings are offerings used to symbolize sealing a covenant. Entering into a covenant and sealing that new relationship. Perfect sacrifice for a covenant renewal ceremony. But then I want you to see what he says they're to do. Verse 12 says, When you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And for the curse... These shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, Nephtali. The Levites shall then answer and say to them with Israel with a loud voice. Now, I hope your Bible's open. Did you catch what they're supposed to do? Six tribes are to stand on Mount Ebal, which the Word of God tells us in Deuteronomy 11 is the symbol of covenant curse. Six tribes are to stand on Mount Gerizim, which is the symbol of covenant blessing. And the Levites were going to stand in between and they were going to read this liturgy of covenant renewal. Now, if your Bible is open, I hope you see the very first word in 11 verses in a row. Look at it. From verse 15 to 26, what do you see? But the very first word is cursed. Cursed, 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 cursed. Twelve times. That's the covenant. And then after every time, these priests said, cursed, 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 cursed. What did Israel say in response? Amen. 
That backdrop is critical for understanding now what's going on in Joshua 8. Come back to Joshua 8. I think you've seen it up there. But you see here, what Joshua is doing is exactly what Moses told him to do. He's now on Mount Ebal, which, by the way, is the Mount of Curse. The last time you saw Joshua, he was administering covenant curse. Now you see him in verse 30. What is he doing? He's standing on the Mount of Curse. I hope you're getting curse, because the author is proclaiming Curse. He's stamping curse across this text in loud terms. Joshua's building the altar like he's supposed to on Mount Ebal. Joshua is building an altar of uncut stones, which he was commanded. He's offering burnt offerings and peace offerings like he's commanding. Verse 32, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law which Moses had written. So he's doing that according to what Moses had commanded him. He gathers all the people. Uh, Verse 33 says half of them stood on Gerizim, half of them stood on Ebal, and he blessed the people there. In verse 34, we're told that he read all the words of the law, the blessing, and the curse. Joshua did exactly what Deuteronomy 27 commanded that he do. What's the end result? Israel is finally renewed in the covenant. So why did they have to be renewed in the covenant? Well, they had to be renewed in the covenant because they broke the covenant their forefathers did in the wilderness. So basically for 40 years they had been officially uncovenanted. We talked about that in Joshua chapter 5, how they had been under covenant curse because none of them had had the chance yet. The men of Israel had not been uh, circumcised, so God circumcised them there as the initial phase of them entering into this covenant. But now in Joshua chapter 8, they finally enter into this covenant officially, and it is ratified by their saying, Amen, 12 times in a row, to the reading of 12 curses. You stop and think about it. It's a perfect time for Israel to enter into this covenant, though, isn't it? We're told there that Joshua read the blessings and the curses. Israel knows what it means to experience covenant blessing and covenant curse, right? They had just come off a battle, right? They had just come off the victory at Ai where they experienced covenant blessing. You will notice several times when you read through this chapter in Ai, it says that Israel did exactly what the Lord commanded. And what happens to Israel when they do exactly what the Lord commands? Blessing. Victory over Ai was blessing. They understand what covenant curse means, because back in chapter 7, they were all put into the curse because of the sin of Achan. So here they are standing on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim in Shechem, going through the liturgy of covenant renewal, and they have just recently experienced the two-edged sword of this covenant, blessing and curse. And you know, that's exactly what this covenant was. To just take a moment to help us better understand this covenant which they entered into, because I want us to be clear in a moment that we are not called to Mount Ebal this morning to go make a curse, like, or rather a covenant, uh, like Israel. This covenant is gracious at one level, at its foundation it is gracious, and, and we should understand that, first of all, because of the location, it's in Shechem. 
Shechem was the place where the Lord came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and he promised him all of the land of Israel for him and his descendants after him. That was at Shechem, and now they stand at Shechem. 400 years later, they stand right where God had spoken to their forefather Abraham. And now, 400 years later, God is making good on his covenant promise to Abraham. That's grace. It's grace in terms of how they got here. If you read through the book of Deuteronomy, what you will find over and over and over again is God talking about his grace to them. Because here they were in Egypt, slaves, during the harsh taskmasters of Egypt. And yet God, by his grace, brought them out. God, by his grace, brought them to the Red Sea. God, by his grace, led them through the wilderness. God, by his grace, led them across the Jordan River. God, by his grace, circumcised the men of Israel and initiated them into the covenant. You see, to be sure, there's a dimension of grace to this covenant. It's footing his grace. They enter into it by God's grace. Yes. But there's a second dimension to this covenant, which is clearly law. Clearly law, because you see that in verse 34. It says, afterward he read all of the words of the law, the blessing and the curse. You see, this, this covenant would provide for them blessing if they obeyed. That's exactly what the law says. In fact, when it says that, Judah, that, that Joshua read to them the whole law, the blessing and the curse, that is a clear reference to Deuteronomy 28, which is the follow-up to the covenant renewal ceremony in Deuteronomy 27. And Deuteronomy 28 says this, Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all of His commandments that I command you this day, all these blessings will come upon you. How will Israel receive blessing? By grace? No, by works. By obeying the commands of God. It couldn't be more clear there. God spells it out in black and white language, so you couldn't miss it if you tried. Israel will experience covenant blessing by obedience to the law. I quoted a whole bunch of passages here in my sermon manuscript this morning. I don't think I'll take the time to read them, but you can for yourself. Deuteronomy 440, Deuteronomy 533, Deuteronomy 6.2, Deuteronomy 7.12. By the way, I could write these down for another five minutes for you. The book of Deuteronomy is covered with language like this. You shall walk in the way of the Lord your God that you may live, that it may be well with you, that you may prolong your days in the land which you possess. Blessing secured through obedience. You see, part of the covenant, I believe that's foundational level with God brought him in by grace, but now second, they maintain their standing and they receive the blessings by words. Well, that's where you get into the two-edged nature of this covenant, because not only blessing that they would earn, but curse if they disobey. Just listen again to the law. Deuteronomy 28.15 says, 
but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes. All these curses will come upon you. And from verse 16 of Deuteronomy 28 till verse 68, we have nothing but a series of curses for disobedience. Kind of lopsided, isn't it? 14 verses to talk about blessing. And what's uh, 68 minus 14? You get 54 verses to talk about, yeah, 54 verses to talk about curse. 54 verses of curse and 14 of blessing. Uh, That brings us to the peril of this covenant then, doesn't it? It's a two-edged sword, and, and, and curse is stated in its terms. You see, everywhere Israel looks now, in Joshua 8, as you pull all of these pieces together, they're confronted with curse. They march up to Mount Ebal, and what do they see? Curse. When they stand there, whether it's on Ebal or Gerizim, what do they hear? Curse. As the liturgy of the renewal is read, 12 times in a row, they hear curse, 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 curse. And then they get a break for 14 verses. And then for 54 more verses, what do they hear? Curse, 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 curse. So they see curse symbolized on Mount Ebal. They hear curse in the liturgy of the renewal. And you've got to believe that the whole time they're going through this experience, curse is on their mind. When they hear those curses read over and over and over, what was the last thing that they saw? But that king, on a hillside, strung up on a tree to symbolize curse. There's no way that's accidental. There's there's no way that the positioning of Joshua in verse 29 hanging that king on a tree to portray covenant curse is positioned next to verse 30 with Joshua standing on the mount of curse. There's absolutely no way that that is an accident. That is put there for one reason, and one reason only, so that Israel would be surrounded mentally, visually, and audibly with curse. Yeah, there's the possibility of blessing through obedience, but everybody knows that's not going to work. All you got to do is read Joshua 9, right? Five minutes after making this covenant, what did they do? They went out and broke the covenant. Five minutes before making this covenant, what did they do? They went out and broke the covenant. Everybody knows, Israel knows, we all know, they're not going to make blessing. And so, so with curse stamped across the passage, now we're all stuck here saying, what's the remedy? 
Uh, that's exactly what the writer has intended, that we're all just sitting here going, okay, what's the remedy? We're all under curse. Well, I would submit to you that that king strung up on a tree on a hillside in Ai is not only the window into Israel's future, which is curse, but that king strung up on a hillside on a tree is the window into blessing. You fast forward to the New Testament and and, and what do you find as the resolution of the problem of covenant curse? But the king who is strung up on a tree on a mountain called Golgotha who takes the covenant curse on himself. It's fascinating how the gospel writers, would, when they describe the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, all use the terms of the covenant to explain the meaning of the death of Christ on the cross. They go out of their way to report that he was crucified on a hill. They go out of their way to say that he was strung up on a tree, not a cross. They say he was hung on a tree. Paul, explaining what redemption is, explicitly uses covenant categories. He says, Christ redeemed us from the what of the law? The blessing of the law? The privilege of the law? The glory of the law? No, he says the curse of the law. We're well positioned to understand what that means after we've just read all of the curses of the law from Deuteronomy 27 and Deuteronomy 28. You are not unaware of what the curse of the law is, right? That curse was administered to everyone who violated the smallest infraction of the law. So you know what redemption is this morning now because you read the Old Testament, don't you? You know what redemption is because Paul says redemption is Christ redeemed us from the curses of the law by doing what? By becoming a curse. And then he goes on to say, it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. See, that king of Ai strung up on that tree outside of town points to a greater king, the king. The Lord Jesus who redeems us from those covenant curses by going to that same tree of curse for himself. Marvelous picture of the gospel we, we have here in our passage. Curse is the way to, covenant curse is the way to eternal blessing and relationship with God because God made it that way. Because of our fallen situation and the mercy and the grace of God, he sends forth his son, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he puts him on a hill, on a tree, and heaps up the covenant curses on him, so that the blessings of the covenant would come unto us through him experiencing the curse of the covenant. A marvelous exchange. What we learned from our passage here this morning well, I would say, first of all, we learn from this what it doesn't teach. This passage does not teach, first of all, law light. 
This passage does not teach law life, which is proclaimed all around us in evangelicalism today. That if you just try really hard, God will send rich blessing on you. And I call that law light because somehow they've taken out the scissors and they cut out all the texts which were positioned right next to it, which are far more in number than if you disobey it, you get cursed. This passage does not proclaim law light. It proclaims law curse. Cursed is everyone who continues not in all the things written in the book of the law to do them. Second of all, this passage does not proclaim to you that we need to gather together ourselves and the people of our community and march out to a hillside and covenant ourselves in the name of the Lord using liturgical covenant renewal ceremony of Deuteronomy 27. And yet that is proclaimed everywhere around us as well, too. Every time it seems to me that there is a natural disaster of any kind of of, of proportions, you have an evangelical figurehead on the television uh, proclaiming that the reason why we are experiencing hurricanes and tornadoes and natural disasters and earthquakes is because we allow some uh, notorious scandalous sin in our country. What are they doing? They're placing you right back into Deuteronomy 27 and Deuteronomy 28, and they're saying that the United States is the new Israel. And the reason why we're suffering is because we're not good enough. I've got news for TV preachers who don't know how to read the Bible. Our covenant is null and void. Because Jesus fulfilled it. That covenant is null and void because Jesus fulfilled it. And never again will any nation or the church be rushed back to Mount Ebal and be forced to re-covenant with God and go through the liturgical renewal ceremony which pronounces twelve curses upon the people who take it. Because Jesus fulfilled it, taking those curses on himself and then making with us a new covenant in his blood. But I would argue that this passage does have an enduring positive lesson for us all this morning. And that is, curse is what we deserve. Curse is what we deserve. We deserve exactly what Israel covenanted to take on itself. Curse. We're no better than Israel. Five minutes before we walked in here, we were sinning. Probably some of the time that we've been in here this morning, we're sinning. And five minutes after we leave here today, we'll be sinning. One minute we're pledging the Lord that we are going to give him our all. The next we're back living for ourselves. One minute we're promising we're going to keep the whole law in gratitude. And the next we're breaking it in rebellion. One minute we're paying lip service to separating ourselves from the mindsets and attitudes of our world. And the next minute we're right in the middle of it. Sharing its attitudes and strategies and light play. This passage does have an enduring lesson for us. We deserve curse. Because we're covenant breakers. But thank God, this morning, God's not going to take us up onto the hillside over here. Our own Mount Ebal. And tell us to meet him in covenant there. Like he did Israel. 
God leads us not to evil, but to the hill of the skull, where Jesus died and took those curses on himself and ratified a covenant, washed away all of our sins, triumphed over all of our enemies, Paul said. And gave us eternal life. That's the true conquest and covenant. And this morning, the word of God proclaims that we participate in that by God's grace. Let's thank him for it.